Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hi, regular listeners, you may have spotted that we've changed our name. It's now Honey & Co. The Food Sessions. So if you hear this sound, it's just us making dinner. Well, that and the fact that we're not allowed to use our old title anymore. It's just been a bit of a thing, but don't worry about it. We hope you enjoy the show. Just don't touch my face. Who run this mother? Who run this mother? Who run this mother? Who run this mother? Hi everyone and welcome to Honey and Coke. This series is called Who Run the World? And we're celebrating women in food. Today we'll be talking to the lovely Claudia Roden. Claudia Roden, if you don't know, is absolutely the goddess of Middle Eastern food, Jewish food. There are so many of us nowadays that, that cook Middle Eastern food in our restaurants or write about it. But you know what? Claudia started it all. Claudia is originally from Egypt and she has researched food all around the Middle East and all through the Jewish diaspora. She takes so much time to research her subjects, to really understand what she's writing about, the food that she's eating, the people that have cooked it for her. You know, she remembers dishes by the person that cooked the dish for her rather than by the dish itself, which is an amazing thing. She has so much knowledge. Her books have so much knowledge. They're so in-depth. They're so inspiring to all of us that cook this kind of food. If you've never heard of her before, you have to listen. And if you have, it's just a pleasure to hear her again. Hope you enjoyed the episode. Guys, please help me welcome Claudia Roden here for us tonight. How, how often do we get to be in such close proximity to such greatness? For me, it's an honor to be here and a pleasure. And I've eaten your food and it's fantastic. I think most people here would know a little bit about your background. But tell us a little bit about how you came to collecting recipes I was here as an art student. I was born in Egypt. I went to school in Paris and I came here. And in 1956, my parents had to leave Egypt all of a sudden. And all the Jews of Egypt left more or less at that time. It was a big traumatic event for a lot of people. And for several years in London, I was part of this community of refugees who were wondering where they would settle, what would happen, where to go. And one of the things that I realized was 
happening, people were asking each other for recipes. Can you give me your recipe for this? For hummus, can you imagine? (laughs) Can you give me the recipe for kibbe? It will be something to remember you by. But the thing was, there hadn't been a single cookbook in Egypt, neither Egyptian nor Jewish nor anything else. And when, uh, for a time, we thought we'll write to anybody, everybody we know in Egypt to say, send us a cookbook. The only book that came back was macaroni cheese, <laughs> cauliflower cheese, roly-poly a la castada. And it was actually a translation of the Nafi cookbook. The Nafi was the catering department of the British Army. Oh. So, that, so that was the only cookbook in Arabic that came from Egypt. But we did have at home in Egypt, we had a cook, uh, but the cook had to learn our cooking because the cooks for everybody came from villages. They didn't know how to cook our foods. Three of my grandparents came from Aleppo. And one of my grandmothers came from Istanbul. So this was our cooking. This was our family cooking. And so the cooks learned how to do Syrian food, Turkish food, Judeo-Spanish food, because that was also part of our cooking that was there through that grandmother in Istanbul. And I started collecting from everybody because it became something I thought that I must do. I must do for us, but also for my father, because my father was desperate to cook what his mother cooked in Cairo. And so I became like an obsessed collector. Every pocket I had in a coat, in a bag, (laughs) had a piece of paper where I had written a recipe. So it was so, for me, important. And at the same time, it gave me a way of being close to all these refugees because I felt I needed that. I needed that before they all go away, we'll have this contact. Before it's all lost. It was it was that. And so a lot of people were saying, this recipe is from my grandmother in Fez. This recipe is from... Izmir. This recipe is from Livorno. And I realized that Egypt, in my time, was a cosmopolitan country with many minorities. And the Jewish minority was itself a mosaic of people who had come from all around the Mediterranean and all around the Middle East. And had connections all around the Middle East. They had connections everywhere. And they had come mainly because the opening of the Suez Canal in the 19th century had made Alexandria and Egypt the great mercantile hub. So my three grandparents left Aleppo because Aleppo more or less died as as the great trading center of the camel caravan trade. That's amazing. I didn't know this at all. Yeah. That's amazing. That's amazing. But so you had, you were kind of obsessively collecting these recipes for, you know, for for years. Yeah. And then at one point, this obsession turned into a book, which is this one, Middle Eastern Food, which came out in 68 after really 10 years of work, actually. Yeah. And then this book became 
a career because it, it wasn't then a career becoming no. a food writer. It wasn't no. a, a path that someone would follow. But even so, my first cookbook that I bought was Elizabeth David's Mediterranean cookbook. Oh. And in it was a recipe for melocheia. Melocheia was uh, an Egyptian leaf that was a soup in which you put uh, rice. Which is very and Egyptian. It's it is very, the very, national yeah. dish. In fact, whenever they find a mummy, it's got melocheia in it. Really? <laughs> and broad beans and full. I so mean, that's the melocheia tastes like a mummy. And it still, so. it was. <laughs> <laughs> Do you like it? Uh, I adore it. Really? But nobody else. <laughs> but all Egyptians adore it. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, it's sort of heaven for them. Yeah. And somewhere, Elizabeth David had written that this was the tip of the iceberg, that there is in the Middle East so much that somebody should do it. And I felt I should do it. But since then, my friend Jill Norman, who actually was the editor of Elizabeth David and says she has read everything that Elizabeth David wrote, she said she never said it anywhere. <laughs> so, <laughs> so did I make it up? Did I dream it? No. She came to you in a dream. <laughs> <laughs> but I did get to know her. Were there any other other <laughs> women writers that that you were that kind of yes opened the I door did. Uh, it was actually Jane Brixton who not only opened the door but was extremely generous. She actually used a lot of my recipes in her column, and she would mention the book. But she was generous in her help and in her advice, and a brilliant writer who brought in culture, literature. And history. And history. Yeah. I admired her hugely. And I felt, well, you can do something which isn't just recipes. I needed an encouragement because all the people that I knew at art school or my, the friends that I made, they would ask me, what are you doing? And I said, I'm collecting recipes. I'm By then, I was saying, I'm doing a cookbook. They would look with horror yeah. because at the time... Writing about food was the lowest possible thing you could do in writing. And to be a chef was the lowest possible thing you could be, unless you were the top, top chef. I mean, food was really a taboo subject. Yeah. People didn't talk about it. If I went to a party and said, I'm collecting recipes for a book, then Quickly, they think, who can I go run away <laughs> from this person? You know, it was the most boring or ridiculous thing to do. Well, it was, it was not, it was very blue collar. It was very, it was not. Yeah. So when did you realize that this was what you're going to do, that this is more than yeah. just a, a book? I, I a kept career. thinking all the time, even after I wrote the book and it was published, that I'm not a food writer. Is this how you, how because do you, I so felt, how, how do this, you describe uh, I your felt job? This was a labor of Hold up. 
What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Love. Yeah. And I don't care about how much I'm paid or... But also... I think I was suffering a bit from my background where in my family, for a woman to work was a shame for the whole family, for the father, the husband, everybody. You shouldn't be working because it puts them to shame that they can't support you. And my father, as soon as the book came out and people said, your daughter wrote a book, or I mean, in the Jewish community of Egypt, He said, yes, but she doesn't earn anything. (laughs) You know, that was what, otherwise it would be a shame on him. No, I mean, but it it was, you know, a career and a good career. And you you raised a house and raised a family on your work. Yes, because I became, I had three children and I became a single mother who was totally unsupported. And I had to really earn our living. So... That's what I did. But it was a career that I really loved doing, that I can't stop doing. No, I mean, and, and please don't. <laughs> and please don't. But how, how do you describe what you do? I saw myself as an educator at a certain point. It means that I had to be a recorder, discovering a cuisine, understanding a cuisine, the background, the history, the culture. And part of it was that when I first went to the British Library to say, are there any Arabic cookbooks? The librarian told me, come back tomorrow and I'll have a list. And they were, all of them from the 13th century. (laughs) A 13th century culinary manuscript in Baghdad with a translation by Professor Arbery. Uh, A manuscript in Damascus, found in Damascus, by Professor Maxime Rodinson, who wrote a thesis. So that gave me a, uh, a feeling that 
uh, first of all, the ancientness of our recipes. It also, for me personally, was proof of who we were, this mixed community of people from everywhere. We called ourselves Basramites. We didn't know there was a place called Basra, <laughs> but we called ourselves Basramites, which means we are a mixture uh, of what? We're Jews from all over and we're here in Egypt. But then there was these recipes from 13th century Damascus, and there was recipes with the same name as ours, similar recipes, not exactly the same, but yeah, almost. And I said, wow, we date back so long. We're still eating that. This is who we are. I, I always see food as a sort of oral history or oral culture and something that's, you know, four generations been passed down. Yeah. And it's our domestic history. Yeah. Because, our, you know, our big stories of wars and conquest, they're all written down and they're... But the domestic history or the domestic yes, culture, it's all... It's there. Yeah. Until res relatively recently, people weren't interested in the culture of food or the history of food. And food was just considered the horrible dredge that yeah. women are stuck in the kitchen. But so now, almost every subject can be studied through the lens of food. Yeah. Society, history... All kinds of things. Economy. Yeah. After the Middle Eastern book, there was a, a, an amazing book about Italy. There were other cook yeah. cookbooks, all very studious. The Mediterranean. You traveled yeah. a lot, yeah? As a woman traveling and gathering this information, do you find being a woman opened certain doors for you or yeah. closed certain doors? I think or? just writing about food, I actually, as soon as my three children left, they all left on the same day, and I decided <laughs> I will leave on the same day. I'm not staying here alone, you know. So I did decide to travel around the Mediterranean, and I traveled alone. In Egypt, I had never gone on a bus or a tram or a train, and I was in a boarding school in Paris in the Lycée. And so suddenly there I was on my own, but I was thrilled <laughs> but I found, actually, you couldn't research any of regional food in the countries at that time because 35 years ago, you couldn't find real regional food in most countries. It was tourist food or the grand restaurant served French cuisine. Even in Italy, there were just a few dishes where they called it Uh, cucina tipica. Yeah. And, uh, but gradually, all this changed. But 35 years ago and for several years, you had to go to people. And for me, it was always women who cooked at home. Yeah. And so I would start off by finding contacts through people here, you know, to go to Marrakesh. And then they said, do you want to go to Fez? My sister lives in Fez. Do you want to go to... So I just had open doors as a woman researching. I think a man at that time would not have had this ease in going to be invited to stand in the kitchen or to go and eat with them or just even to sit and get a recipe from them. So I think I had an advantage then. That was kind of your, your yeah, foot in the door. 
But I didn't have an advantage traveling because in those days, for a woman to be traveling, it was suspect. Yeah. But sometimes kind of they you... didn't believe you. In Sardinia, I went up uh, mountains in, a, for instance, a hunting lodge where they were all hunters. And I would say, can I go to the kitchen? And nobody said no, so I just went to the kitchen. Yeah. And suddenly... A woman, Batalax, who was the manageress, would come in and just say, Fuori, Fuori. And I would say, I've got a, a letter, you know, that I'm researching food or something. At that time, I was researching for the Sunday Times magazine. Yeah. And she wouldn't believe it. Uh, but then <laughs> the hunters would say, do you want to come? and sit with us. They were singing. So I went to sit with Then suddenly she came and she said, go back to your room and leave tomorrow. <laughs> so there were Yes. I always enjoy that story, really. Uh, before I left, she said, do you have a husband? <laughs> you know, and, and there was this what, thing. She thought you were going to find yourself a hunter. Something, or, do, <laughs> or look for something. But even... I mean, in Egypt, I was traveling along the Nile and stopping in villages because <laughs> I wanted to find what dishes could I uh, find in Egypt that I didn't know that could be used. But I would go in a village and somebody would come out of her house and look at me and say, what are you doing? What are you doing? I just said, I'm coming for recipes. And she said, all right, come in. We're making, you know, lentil soup, maybe melochia. <laughs> and I would sit there. And the first thing she would say, do you have a, where's your husband? And I said, rah. Rah <laughs> means he went. <laughs> and then I said, do you have a husband? Matt, he died. <laughs> so, Okay. And if you were a man who said, who followed you, because then I wasn't yet 50, I would say, you know, I have five grandchildren, four or five grandchildren. I'd say, sorry, sorry, which I didn't have yet. But, but, so, <laughs> but so there was this... Uh, Imaginary grandkids. Yes. But I did find that, yes, in Morocco, going into the restaurants, all the women were cooks. Yeah, because uh, they have a big tradition of, of professional cooking. women. And cooks. I went to the to the catering school. They were all women. Some of them had been the daughters of slaves, because there were slaves still. Yeah, they were not officially slaves, but but they practice, got no pay. Yeah. They worked in in families and just got food and yeah. and so and yeah, there was that. But then when I went to Turkey. And I had I wanted to go into professional kitchens. I had to organize and ask. At that time, uh, professional kitchens were men only, not a single woman. And they said we don't allow any woman. And that, that's because all of the you know for, for kind of the royal court and all the yes. aristocracy, their there cooks was, at home were there men. There was a big uh, It was the only place in the Middle East that had real professional cooks yeah. who cooked in restaurants, who had a real uh, restaurant trade. Yeah. It developed from the cooking in the Ottoman times. Uh, the cooks in the, in the palace were slave cooks. You know that there were slaves yeah. in the Ottoman times. 
and they came from all over the Ottoman lands. And to be a slave cook was a high profession. Yeah. Uh, but then local Turkish men became cooks in the palace and in the aristocracy. And they all came from a few villages, about three villages in the mountains where the sultans used to go and and hunt. Yeah. And then it's and these people them. who kind of took over they took all the grand hotels, the grand <laughs> restaurants of Istanbul. They were kind of keeping these those exactly. traditions alive. And when you came to kind of learn these traditions and yes. get their secret, were they was they was it close to you or were you able they to access that? They were surprised that? that somebody, a woman, would come and ask them. And when I came with a with a um, a Turkish woman who was herself had researched all the cuisines of Turkey, Nevin Halici. I told her, you know, I've got an appointment to go to this very grand hotel, which had a grand restaurant. She said, I, I can't go because I have never been allowed in a professional kitchen. And so I just, we went there and I said, she has to come with me because I've invited her. They were terribly embarrassed. I have to say that now, when I've been later in Istanbul, there are several young women who have their own restaurants. Yeah. So it's changed. Uh, all the food that we cooked here tonight is from the book of Jewish food. We had a very short discussion whether we should cook from the Ashkenazi chapter, <laughs> which even, I think you're the only person that can make this food look tempting. But don't worry, we didn't. We really didn't. We said, you know, we were talking about this a little bit, but then we said, no, we, we will be bricked probably. <laughs> so we don't need to worry. What we've managed somehow to narrow it down, we did the beautiful potato dish with olives and turmeric and coriander, which is, again, what I love about Claudia's cooking. And, you know, because we, we do like, even if, if you open, say, my books, you will you will find a list of ingredients this long, which even when yeah. I look at it, it's exhausting. But in Claudia's book, I will have four ingredients. They will be the four most important ingredients and the food will come out amazing. This is one thing that I find today, yeah. as you asked me, is that suddenly all the things that I would be talking about before, tahina and pomegranate syrup, which nobody would know or would see, or suddenly everybody is using masses of it and they're putting much more in. Yeah. And I must say there are people like you, like a few people we know who do fantastic, uh, their own take, yeah. their but own can, way. Can I say, Claudia, you know, no disrespect to your time. It's your fault. You started it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you opened the door and then it was a floodgate. Yes. Yeah. You know, you can only blame yourself, lady. <laughs> I always say that my career is copy and paste job of your book. And I'm not ashamed of it even. I think that's a badge of honor. Claudia, really, we, we, we didn't even start, I don't think. But I think if we're not going to give these people something to eat, they're going to throw bandoras at me. <laughs> So please, guys, join me in saying a big, big thank you to this legend of a person, Claudia Roden. That interview was part of our series, Who Run the World? Celebrating Women in Food.
Thanks to our guest, Claudia Roden. Thank you also to all the incredible women of Honey & Co., especially Louisa Cornford, she helps us with everything podcast, and to Miranda Hinckley, the producer. Drop us an email with your thoughts, feedbacks, questions. You can email us at podcast at honeyandco.co.uk or you can find us on social media at Honey & Co. We'd absolutely love to hear from you. Click subscribe wherever you get your podcasts to get the rest of the series. See you next time. 